Good morning to everyone, and a special warm welcome to those visiting. There are a few with us today. I usually forget, almost always forget to mention, if you're a visitor, you've come without a Bible, there are Bibles spread throughout the auditorium. If you just look down under the seats in front of you, you'll see one there within arm's length, arm's reach, I hope. And also, if you're visiting in the bulletin which you received on the way in, there are sermon notes uh, to help, obviously, take notes, follow uh, the sermon, our study, as we move through God's Word together. We are in the book of Colossians, and we have come to, I think it's correct to say this, we have come to the key that unlocks the book. We have come to those verses which explain, make sense of everything we've considered thus far, and will make sense, set the tone, the trajectory for everything Paul has yet to say in this epistle. And I am referring to Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. The key. Here we have these verses which constitute the key that unlocks the epistle. And so follow along as I read this portion of God's Word. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, just wander back with me to the sixth verse. Let me read it again, and I want you just to pick up on a phrase. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, here it is, so walk in Him. And I've taken the title for this sermon from that statement, Walking in Christ. And I want to, by God's help, uh, direct this sermon, the content of these verses, to, to everyone. That's quite a task, because we are a mixed bunch, a mixed multitude. And so I want want to begin by suggesting, that's a nicer way than saying affirming, that there are five groups of people with us today, if I can say that. Now you're thinking, don't categorize me. Well, I'm going to categorize you. There are five groups of people uh, present in this auditorium right now. The first is this, those who have been walking with Christ, in Christ, for quite a while, sometime, years, decades, some would say a lifetime. And as we consider these verses together, I hope you will be encouraged. Here's what I'm after, my design. I hope you will be encouraged to press on. Just keep going, one foot in front of the other, eyes heavenward, fixed on glory, press on, walking in Christ. Second category is this. There are some in our midst who 
only recently have started to walk in Christ. And so my word to you, what I hope you get out of these verses is as follows. I want to encourage you to follow the right course. I say that because there are many competing courses, roads, avenues. There are dangers and there are detours. And so I encourage you, get on, you're on the right course, stay, remain on the right course. The third group is this. Those who are finding it increasingly difficult to walk in Christ. Increasingly difficult. Taxing, troubling, exhausting. And what I'm after is this. I want to encourage you. Here's what I want you to get out of these verses. I want to encourage you to understand why. Did you get that? Why? Why is it like that? Why am I finding this increasingly difficult to walk in Christ? Fourth category is as follows. Those who claim to walk in Christ, but aren't going anywhere, and you've never gone anywhere, I want to encourage you to reconsider. What do I mean by that? Well, you'll have to pay attention. I want to encourage you to rethink things seriously before the Lord. And the fifth group, those who are not walking in Christ. You make no no claim to be walking in Christ. Uh, You make no claim to be a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus. And through these verses, this portion of God's word, I want to encourage you to see the danger of remaining on the road you are traveling. Did you fit into one of those five groups? If you don't think you did, I dare to disagree, you do. There might be some overlap. You might fit into one, two, maybe even three of these groups But uh, somewhere in that list of five, those five groupings, those five categories, you will find yourself. And I want you to hear these four verses, this pivotal juncture at which we've arrived in our study of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And I want to encourage you, based on where you are at, in terms of walking in Christ. Now, Paul, in these verses, he is at his pastoral best. He's an apostle, we know that. He's an evangelist, excellent evangelist, we know that. Missionary, beyond compare, fantastic. But eclipsing all of these things, Paul is essentially a pastor. And he has a pastor's heart. And that pastor's heart is evident in all of his writings, all of those letters and books which he wrote, which we find in our New Testament. Uh, We always see his pastor's heart pulsating. In these verses in particular, and we see it in three things, and these three things are going to form the outline of my sermon this morning, so let me give them to you right at the outset. Three words. There is firstly a word of admonition. That's just a fancy word for warning. A word of admonition. Fourth verse. There is secondly a word of commendation. Well done. Sort of slap you on the back. Well done. Good job. That's what we have in verse 5. And then there is, thirdly, a word of exhortation, a commandment, an order, marching orders. And we find that in verses 6 and 7. So Paul, we see this pastoral emphasis here, quite tremendous when you think of it, because he's never been to the city of Colossae. 
It's possible he knows some believers there whom he has met elsewhere, but for the most part, this is an unknown church in an unknown city, a church made up of people unknown to the Apostle Paul. And yet, here we see the shepherd's heart and his pastoral concern for them by way of a word of admonition, a word of commendation, and a word of exhortation. So consider the first with me, verse 4, a word of admonition. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's a warning. We might not always think like this. Warnings are our friends. Uh, Warnings serve a very functional purpose. Uh, We are to heed warnings for our own good. An example, an illustration I've given here on many occasions, and some of you could probably jump up here and give it as well as I could now, is of a little place in northeast England. Do you remember this? Lindisfarne, northeast England. Rosetta remembers everyone else you look like it's the first time you've ever heard it. That's fine. Here we go then. Lindisfarne, northeast England. There is a tidal island. What is that? It's simply a piece of land which is an island during certain parts of the day, a tidal island. It is an island when the tide is in, surrounded by water. It is no longer an island when the tide is out. You can actually walk to it. There's a causeway. You can drive your car out to this island. There are refuge boxes from the mainland to the island. Why? With warning signs. Why? Because if you're walking from the mainland to the island while the tide is out, when it starts to come in, it comes in so quickly that if you aren't beyond a certain point, you're not going to make it. And the warning sign is there. If you see water coming in, do not try to reach the other side. You get up in the refuge box. There are also warning signs on either side of of the mainland and the island for those who dare drive across. You need to leave before a certain hour. If you leave after this very specific time, you're in trouble. And you know what happens every year. They're picking what? Out of the water. Cars, because some husband says to his wife, don't worry, dear, we can make it. And off he goes, ignoring the warning sign. And in comes the tide and overwhelms the car. Warning signs are our friends. And here Paul gives us a warning sign. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible Arguments. Break it down with me. Three sections. Section number one is this. Very easy. Three words right at the outset. I say this. Say what is what you should be asking. Say what? Well, grab your Bible and look all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3. Do you see it? Where Paul says, we always thank God. And now just cast your eye over all of the subsequent verses All the way into chapter 2, verse 3. Do you see it? Just glancing your eye over all those verses? That's what Paul has just said. I say this. Say what? Everything he has declared from the outset of this letter. What has he declared? Going all the way back to the beginning of this letter. He has built. The Apostle Paul has constructed, let's say, two pillars upon which the superstructure rests. That's what he's done. I say this. Say what? I've established two pillars. 
The first pillar is this, the sufficiency of the word of truth. Glance back with me quickly. Verse 5, where he writes, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. He repeats it in effect in verse 6, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You heard something. You heard the gospel. More specifically, you heard the word of truth. He says something similar in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The sufficiency of the word of truth. Paul's point is simply this. Look, folks, there is a deposit. There is a deposit. The Father revealed his will to the Son. The Son has revealed, made known that deposit of truth to his apostles. And the apostles, praise God, have faithfully transmitted that deposit to us. It is known as the New Testament, the word of truth. And so Paul has built this pillar, the word of truth. You've heard it. You heard it from a man named Epaphras. You didn't hear it from me, but God bless Epaphras. Uh, I totally sanction Epaphras' ministry. I am on board with Epaphras. Epaphras, as far as I'm concerned, is a faithful minister of the Lord because he preaches what we preach. He proclaims what we proclaim. What we proclaim is what we receive from the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, which he himself received from the Father. It is the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, it is sufficient. I mean, you don't need anything else. That's Paul's point. It is a pillar, the sufficiency of the word of truth. The second pillar he erects is this, the sufficiency of the Son of God. And he does that efficiently, beginning still in chapter 1, verse 15 through to verse 22. And there he shows the significance of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And he waxes eloquent. Paul there is at his best. It is sublime. The language he uses and the way in which he worships this doxology as he celebrates the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates the significance of Christ universally. He is the head of creation, the creator of all things. He is also the head of a new creation, inaugurated through his resurrection, a new creation which which awaits his return when all will be consummated and renovated, a new heavens and a new earth. That is his universal significance. But he also sheds some light on Christ's personal significance. 
what he means for us as individuals. We were alienated, dead in our trespasses and sins. Long, long, immeasurable distance between God and us. But the Lord Jesus has reconciled us, those who believe in him. The Lord Jesus has reconciled us, brought us near, made peace between us and God through the shedding of his blood. And we now stand in Christ. Oh, the sufficiency of the Son of God. There they stand, two pillars. The sufficiency of the word of truth and the sufficiency of the Son of God. I say this. What? Those two pillars. Now, notice the second section in verse 4. I say this. There's a purpose to it all. Everything he said to this point. I say this in order that no one may delude you. What does that mean? Deceive you. Lead you astray. So there you are at home. And the doorbell goes off or someone knocks at the door. And it is a, a woman, and uh, she says to you, look, we just happen to be in the neighborhood, and uh, we are offering to clean uh, the floor of one of the rooms in your house, your choice, no obligation. And we will clean that floor with our heavy-duty, supersonic, unbelievably shiny gizmo, which is just coming out of, off the production line, no obligation. Three hours later, she has cleaned every floor in your house. She's gone. You're sitting on the couch. Your eyes are glazed. Your hair is frazzled. Your throat is parched. You're now the proud owner of a supersonic, heavy-duty, unbelievably shiny gizmo. $500. Just the first payment. What just happened? What just happened? Someone just convinced you you needed something that you actually didn't need. Change the scene. You're vacationing and you're poolside. And the man approaches you. I hope you're enjoying your stay at the hotel. We are offering you $50 cash. $50. All you have to do is come and sit for one hour to hear the latest offerings we have in terms of timeshares. $50. I want to go to Olive Garden. Sounds great. An hour. And it's in the evening. The sun's gone down anyway. Off you go. Three hours later, the hair is frazzled. The throat is parched. Your eyes are glazed. You're bewildered. But you're now the proud owner of a timeshare in Kissimmee. And you don't know what just happened. You have been what? convinced you needed something that you did not need. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in this verse. Understand, brothers and sisters, at some point, somewhere, someone will try to sell you a bill of goods, will try to convince you you need something that you do not need. And here we have it, brothers and sisters. Follow Paul's thought flow. I say this in order that no one will delude you. What has he said? Two pillars. The sufficiency of the word of truth and the sufficiency of the Son of God. And I guarantee it, 
In every case, when someone comes along, someone who will seek to delude you in departing from the faith, just, just, just ever so slightly veering off to the right or veering off to the left, it will in some way, size, shape, or form undermine those two pillars. It will undermine the sufficiency of the word of truth. Well, yeah, the Bible is the Word of God. Oh, but have you heard His voice lately? Are you really filled with the Spirit? Have you spoken in tongues? Have you had this experience? Have you had that experience? Do you know anything of the second blessing? Oh, have you laid it all on the altar? Fine, you're a believer. Praise God. But the, and, and you've got the Bible and you read the Bible. Fantastic. But you're a Christian. But are you a super Christian? And it's something that will depart from the sufficiency of the word or something that will depart from the sufficiency of the Son of God. You're a Christian. Fantastic. Brother, sister, it's fabulous. The Lord Jesus died and we all believe in the Lord Jesus. And then the word comes. But, but, uh, do you do this? Are you, uh, are, are you worshiping on a Saturday? Because we really should be worshiping on a Saturday. Are you a Christian Zionist? Because, you know, you really should be a Christian Zionist. Have you, have you looked into this? Have you looked into that? Uh, something that will make you feel what? Second rate. Something that will make you feel like you're traveling with the baggage, with the baggage on the train to glory. Something that will make you feel, I've been missing out. There's something more. Hey, there is, after all, a silver bullet. And if I just start doing this, if I just start doing that, if I just start thinking this way or believing in this, well, then my life will just take off like 90. Everything will become crystal clear. Oh, there'll be just the breeze in my sails, and, and I'll finally know victory over sin. I'll finally know victory over this. I'll finally begin to experience this and make headway there. Oh, brothers and sisters, I say this in order that no one may delude you. Here's the thing, a couple things we, we fail to grasp as Christians. The first is this. Um, we don't understand what we've got already in Christ. That, that is a fundamental problem. There I say that most of us in this room struggle with. Most of us in this room. We don't get um, what we've already got in Christ. The second thing we struggle with is this. We're not getting any more. Brother, you've already got everything you need. And sister, you've already got everything you need. The sufficiency of the word of truth. Do not be moved. And the sufficiency of the Son of God. And I say this in order that no one may delude you. There's a third section right at the end with plausible arguments. What's a plausible argument? It's an argument that it sounds good. <laughs> On some level, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. In some way... Yeah, I kind of like that. It's appealing in some way, some form. It is plausible, plausible arguments. And Paul, he's facing this head on. He's acknowledging, look, when wolves come, they don't come as howling wolves. 
when wolves come, who do they look like? They look just like you, and they look just like me. You can't pick them out. You can't identify them simply by looking at them, because they look exactly like us. They act exactly like us. And these arguments seem plausible. But don't be deluded by them, and you won't be deluded by them if you've paid attention to what I have just said. From verse chapter 1, verse 3, right through to chapter 2, verse 3. If these pillars are firmly in place, the sufficiency of the word of truth and the sufficiency of the Son of God, and if we understand what it is we've been given, this deposit, the word of God, And if we understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and if we comprehend this great mystery, which is now Christ in you, the hope of glory, we would understand what is ours and understand that God has given us all we're going to get because he has given us more than we actually need. Our problem is what? Are we actually living in the reality of it? Is this the foundation upon which we are building? Now, in the rest of this chapter, let me just give you a preview of what's coming. In the rest of chapter 2, Paul is going to touch on four plausible arguments. He's going to name them, name names. Boom, 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 boom. These these scenarios, these plausible arguments are quite different in what they're expressing and articulating. But they all have a common denominator. What is it? They undermine the sufficiency of the word of truth, and they undermine the sufficiency of the Son of God. Let me just give them to you. The first begins in verse 8. I'm going to call it humanism. We're not looking at these today. I'm just giving you a preview. We're going to be in this chapter right through February into March. But just so you can see where we're going and how Paul's argumentation is building, beginning in verse 8, plausible argument number 1, humanism. See to it. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then he's going to give his answer from verse 9 down through verse 15. That's plausible argument number one, what I'm going to call humanism. Plausible argument number two begins in verse 16, legalism. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's plausible argument number two. Plausible argument number three begins in verse 18. We're going to call it mysticism. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. And then the fourth plausible argument, beginning in verse 20, asceticism. He's already used the word. Now he really expands on it, beginning in verse 20. If with Christ you die, to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? Did you get them? Four plausible arguments. 
We still face these arguments today because nothing is new under the sun. They morph. They undergo an evolution and some changes in terms of the exterior. But the essence remains the same. And their fundamental problem does not change. They undermine, again, let me repeat it, the sufficiency of the word of truth and the sufficiency of the Son of God. Of the Son of God. That is Paul's pastoral admonition. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. We have secondly now his pastoral commendation. Verse 5, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. What he means by that is simply we are united by the Spirit of God. I've never been to Colossae. I'm obviously not there physically. But, but our closeness is such that I, that I, that I feel I'm there with you. Uh, we're one. We're in the body of Christ, united by the Spirit of God. So one body. And so I feel I'm one with you in intent and in will and in purpose. And I'm certainly concerned for you. And so though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit and I'm rejoicing. Uh, he was rejoicing back in chapter 1, giving thanks for them. I'm rejoicing as Epaphras has come to me. And Epaphras has transmitted some wonderful, wonderful updates as to how you are growing and abounding in the faith. And so I'm rejoicing. Why specifically in this case? To see what? Your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In other words, I think he's simply saying this. Uh, I know what's going on there in the church at Colossae. And I know these wolves are going to come. And these plausible arguments are going to be presented. And there is the danger of delusion, of deception. But let me just pat you on the back and give you a word of commendation. I also know your stability. I know something of your maturity. Epaphras has told me, firsthand account. And oh, I thank God. I thank God for what I hear, your good order. I thank God for what I hear concerning your firmness of your faith in Christ. You are unmovable, unshakable, unwavering. Those two pillars, you've added your amen, and you are holding to those two pillars for all you are worth. And so I know there is a measure of stability. I know there is a measure of maturity because you are fixed. You are grounded. You are established. And so when these plausible arguments come and you hear them, I'm confident you've already got in place all you need to stand firm and resist it. I'm confident you've already got all that you need to be discerning. Discern between good and bad, good and evil. To to discern, distinguish, differentiate between truth and error. Our children, one, two, three years of age even, uh, you know it as well as I do, they are orally fixated, aren't they? And they will put just about anything in their mouths. Just this oral fixation. And we're running around trying to keep, move things to higher ground, with things we don't want them to put in their mouths. And, and then we see them 
something in there, and then goes the finger trying to fish out, and it was an animal cracker, and we're relieved because we had no idea what the little one might have just tucked in there. As they get older, what happens? They mature. There's a measure of firmness, stability, maturity. If you have a 16-year-old who's still putting marbles in his mouth, you've got a real problem. Because as we get older, we learn to distinguish between what will help us and what will hurt us. What will do us good, build us up, edify us. I'm now in the spiritual realm. And what will tear us down and uh, cause our growth to, to stagnate. And so Paul slaps him on the back, just this hearty slap on the back. I've heard it from Epaphras, and I'm rejoicing because of your good order, your stability, your maturity, the firmness of your faith in Christ. Yes, again, pillar number one, the sufficiency of the word of truth. You heard it, you received it, and that is where you are standing. The sufficiency of the Son of God. You understand His universal significance, you understand His personal significance, and you grasp this unbelievable, mind-boggling mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you understand that all that God has to give, and is bountiful and is beautiful, He has given to you, He has lavished upon you in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where you're standing. And you will not be moved. And so there is now a measure of discernment. Because when these plausible arguments come along, and ooh, they do sound good, those little hairs on the back of your neck, what happens? Boom. They stand up. Because you may not understand all of the nuances and ins and outs and all the lingo and language and what they're pontificating and what they're saying and what they're writing and what they're claiming. You might not be able to make heads or tails out of it. But you know this. It departs from the two pillars. You know this, it is undermining, attacking in some way the sufficiency of the word of truth, or it is attacking, undermining, tweaking, distorting in some way the sufficiency of the Son of God. Tim Challies, a few years ago, produced a wonderful book on spiritual discernment. And in that book, he gives the illustration of, of, uh, of those tasks. He's a Canadian, so he's speaking in the Canadian context. I think it was the Bank of Canada those tasked and trained to identify counterfeit money. And he says it's quite fascinating. He actually went and had a a survey of where they did this and the training that they offered. And the thing that struck him was this. They actually spend very little time looking at counterfeit money. Go figure. You'd think if you're going to be paid big bucks to identify counterfeit money by the Bank of Canada, you'd spend a lot of time being able to identify, well, that's counterfeit, that's counterfeit, that's counterfeit. No, you know what they spend their time doing? Getting to know the real thing. That's all. And Charlie's writes the following. In discerning what is true from what is false, it is best to focus more attention on what is genuine than on what is counterfeit. It would be tempting to train people to identify what is fraudulent by focusing a great amount of time on what is false. However, this is important. Because falsehood is always changing, it is more beneficial to focus on what is unchanging. Knowing and identifying what is false can be done best by knowing and understanding what is true. A person who studies and understands what is true is necessarily, by definition, equipping himself to discern what is 
false. So how, how do I keep up on all these new fandangled ideas? I, I mean, they're just, I mean, the internet, blogs, you know, any Yahoo anywhere can pontificate on anything. Give his two cents, not even worth two cents, worth on anything. Construct anything. Put together a shiny, beautiful web presentation. It looks, well, this guy must know something. It must have quite the backing. Then you realize just him in his grandma's house with his computer. And, and he's spewing out all of these ideas and plausible arguments. And then there's this guy over here, there's this gal over here, and he's saying this, he's saying that. I can't keep up. It's just coming at me, coming at me, coming at me. We don't have to keep up. We immerse ourselves in what we know to be true. And when the false comes along, that just doesn't sound right. I don't get it all. I can't even pronounce half the words. I can't follow the argumentation. It sounds good because they're talking about Jesus and, 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 and quoting, seem to be quoting the Bible. It sounds good. But when I go back to the sufficiency of the word of truth, and I go back to the sufficiency of the Son of God, if I am mature, if I am stable, if there is a measure of firmness in the faith, the alarm bells go off. The siren starts wailing. That tornado warning starts just sounding off in my mind. Something isn't right here. Because this idea, this notion, this concept is challenging what I know to be true, these two pillars upon which the superstructure of the faith is constructed. Following along here with this word of commendation and Charlie's argument here concerning what it is to identify something fraudulent, something false, something that is doctored, something that, yes, at first glance, it seems right, it seems true. We see Paul's pastoral heartbeat, don't we? We see now why he labored so diligently in chapter 1 to lay that firm foundation to go over these essential truths concerning the sufficiency of the word of truth and concerning the sufficiency of the Son of God. And now we see his third pastoral emphasis, verses 6 and 7, a pastoral word of exhortation. Follow along as I read these verses again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted, and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Three questions, quickly. First is this. Who had they received? Look at the fullness of Paul's description in verse 6. Therefore, as you received, not merely Christ, not merely Christ Jesus, but Christ Jesus the Lord. He is Christ the one who fulfills the entire Old Testament from beginning to end, Genesis to Malachi, everything in between, all of its sacrifices and rituals, all of its covenants, all of its hopes and desires fulfilled in the anointed one, the Christ. He is Jesus, not merely the one who fulfills, but the one who saves. Jehovah is salvation. And he is the Lord. The one who 
reigns, the one who reigns over the entire created order, and the one who reigns over the entire created order for the benefit of his body, his church, his people. You received him. Question number two, how had they received Christ? They had received Christ when Epaphras preached it, proclaimed it. That is the word of truth, that deposit from the Father to the Son to the apostles to us. That deposit, that faith, once for all delivered to the saints. That's how you received it. To receive Christ is to receive the word. To receive Christ is to receive the word of truth. Question number three. Having done that, how are they to walk in Christ? Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Notice three things. The first is this. First mark of walking, verse 7, growing. Having been rooted. Having been rooted. So the idea of, uh, of a plant, a tree, having been rooted, firmly rooted, and now being built up. So there's continuity. You received Christ. You received the word of truth. When you received him, you were rooted. Just keep doing what you did then. Now you continue to grow. And then notice, secondly, the emphasis on believing and established in the faith just as you were taught. And so having been taught, instructed by Epaphras in the word of truth, the deposit handed down, Father, Son, Apostles, the church, what we have in the New Testament, having been instructed in that, now you must be established. In other words, you just keep on doing what you did. There is continuity. There is nothing more than what you've already done. There is nothing more to get than what you already got. There's nothing more to receive than what you already received. You received Christ. And when you received Him, you were rooted. Now just continue growing. When you received Him, you were instructed. Now continue to be established. And the third mark is this, the very last phrase in verse 7. Abounding in thanksgiving. There's your motivation. All the motivation you need. Christianity is not a legalistic religion. Christianity is a thanksgiving-based religion. Christianity, the essence of Christianity is this great reality that Christ Jesus the Lord gave himself for me. And in giving himself for me, he transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to his own kingdom. He took me from this state of alienation from God to this blessed state of reconciliation to God. He rescued me from a condition that would have led most certainly to damnation. And he's implanted in me the hope of eternal life. And out of thanksgiving, oh, thinking back to when I first received him and first received the word of truth, that thanksgiving does not wane. It does not diminish. The more I grow in him, the more it actually increases. And there I have the motivation. There I have the impetus to do what? Well, having been rooted to continue to grow, having been instructed, to continue to be established. A word of exhortation. Three words. A pastoral admonition. A pastoral commendation. And a pastoral exhortation. Now I know some time has passed. But let me test your, your mettle here. You remember not too long ago. I mentioned there, were five, there are five categories of people here. Do you remember that? Category number one is this. Those who have been walking in Christ for some time, quite a while. 
And I stated that my goal, very simple, to encourage you to press on. I think verse 5 is really for you. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Oh, rejoicing. I could echo the words of the Apostle Paul. I rejoice over you. I rejoice to see your good order. Rejoice to see the firmness of your faith in Christ. You're just like that rock that has stood there for centuries. Unmovable. It will not be moved. You know where you stand. You know who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what God has given you in Christ. Oh, and be encouraged to press on. Second category is this. Those who have recently started to walk in Christ. I want to encourage you to make sure you understand what the right course is because there are competing courses. I think verses 6 and 7 are for you specifically. Therefore, as you receive Christ, maybe just a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, just as you received him, now walk in him. There is no second blessing, brother. There isn't something you're missing out on, sister. Just as you received him, keep walking in Him. You were rooted in Him, believing in Him. Now just grow in Him. You were instructed in Him. Now you need to continue to be established through the word of truth in Him. Do not be moved. These two pillars, they must set your course and direction for life. The sufficiency of the word of truth. All you're going to ever hear from God is in this book. And if you start looking elsewhere, you're asking for a whole lot of hurt. All God, I guarantee it, I promise you, all God will ever say to you is found in this book and it is more than sufficient for every need. It is more than sufficient to see you safely home. It is more than sufficient to buttress your faith and your hope and your joy and your thanksgiving and the Son of God. Oh, the mystery, this great mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the right course. Third category is this. Those who are finding it difficult to walk in Christ. And I wanted to encourage you as to understand why. I think verse 4 is for you. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. None of us want to hear this. Uh, I don't want to be told I'm delusional or semi-delusional. No one wants You've been deluded. No one wants to hear that. But... uh, May I suggest pastorally that if growing in Christ for you as a Christian is an enigma and you find yourself just running here, there, everywhere, trying this, trying that, never getting anywhere, looking for the next fix, as I mentioned, looking for that silver bullet, I suggest to you, you are suffering from what Paul warns against in this verse. You have been deluded at least in some measure, distracted, deceived with plausible arguments, and you need to get back to the foundation. Fourth group of people as follows. Those who claim to walk in Christ but are not going anywhere and have never gone anywhere. I want to encourage you and exhort you to reconsider. Reconsider what? That in all likelihood... You aren't in Christ. To be in Christ is by definition to grow. It is. You can't separate separate them. 
to be united with the vine and to be a true branch is to bear fruit. Oh, don't misunderstand me. Some seasons, there might not be many apples to pick. In other seasons, you're just the baskets, keep them coming, just lots of fruit. There may be times of, yes, stagnation and really struggling. I know that. But if over the course of what you perceive to be your Christian journey, you are the same person you were when you began, and yet you claim to be walking with Christ, I beg you to reconsider. To be in Christ is to grow. To be in Christ is to be united with life itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, all who come to him and become one with him, imparts his spirit, whereby we become a new creation in him, and all things, the old things, have passed away. There is a measure of transformation. Don't, do not, do not, oh, I know so many are prone to, to, to doubt here, and I, I want to be pastorally clear. When you, when you measure these things and perceive these things, do, do not examine yourself on the basis of how far you have to go. Because you've still got a long way to go, as do I. Do, do not examine yourself on the basis of what I wish I were or what I want to be. No. We examine ourselves simply on the basis of I am no longer what I used to be. However feeble I might be at present, and however I might struggle, and at times the fruit is just barely edible, I do know this. I'm no longer who I used to be, and there can only be one plausible explanation for that. It is the Spirit of God, because I know it has nothing to do with me. Now, I, I am speaking pastorally to those. And friend, you alone know, God alone knows, that as you examine the course of your life, and you made that profession of faith when you're 7, 17, 27. Five years have gone by, and you know, nothing changed. I beg you, reconsider. Fifth category is this. Those who are not walking in Christ. You don't even claim it. Right here, right now, this place. You just heard a sermon. Just heard the word of God proclaimed. Believer, not me. Christian, not me. Walking with Christ? No, I don't claim to walk with Christ. I encourage you to see the danger of remaining on the road you're traveling. There are uh, three ways, three ways in which we are related to Christ. Have I got your attention? That's interesting. There are three ways in which we are related to Christ or can be related to Christ. Uh, there are those without Christ. That might be some here right now. Uh, Christ is not in you. He is not your hope of glory. You are still alienated from God. Uh, there are secondly those who are with Christ. Some of us have loved ones and they have parted this earth. They have passed away and they are now with Christ. And the third possible relationship is what? To be in Christ. That is to be a Christian. To be in Christ is to feel the weight of our sin. And how, fall, how, how, how we just do not measure up. And how we've got a real problem with selfishness and self-centeredness. It is to understand that we are riddled with sin. And that sin 
just that love of self, just colors everything, the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, all that we do. And we just leave so much of it in our wake behind us, so many problems and sins that flow from that. And just to understand that by virtue of that sin, I am separated from God. There is no relationship there. There is no inkling of a relationship. But it is to understand that the Son of God himself became a man that the womb of a woman held the Son of God. He was born a man, walked on this earth, obeyed his Father perfectly, fully, completely. And then as a sacrifice for sin, gave himself out of love, laid down his life on behalf of sinners at Calvary's cross. It is to understand he alone is the only hope of salvation. And it is to look, look to him. It is to rest in him. It is to come to him. It is to understand that nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. And when we believe, we become one with Christ. We are no longer without Christ. We are in Christ. And we have every conceivable and inconceivable blessing that God wishes to bestow upon us in and through the sufficiency of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I beg you, I plead with you as a minister of the gospel. If that is your condition today, you are without Christ. Consider what that means. Consider the road you are on. Consider what it will mean to die to leave this earth, this world, and to fall into the hands of an angry God and understand that in Christ that anger is turned away and there is nothing but overflowing fountains of love found in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on him this day. You look to him for salvation. You come to him for salvation. And you rest in him fully, completely, entirely for salvation. Our Father, we praise you for the glorious gospel. Praise you for its simplicity, what it is to know sins forgiven. Praise you for its profundity, what it means that your Son became a man, became a curse for us, became sin for us, that we might become your righteousness. Oh, our Father, we pray that the glories of Christ might overwhelm us this day that they might fall, they might descend like a fresh, soothing, calm rain, bringing refreshment to the soul, causing us to praise you above all else, causing us to love you and place you above all else. And we ask this for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen.